This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor and Senior Economist Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Siegel. Please note, I am a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We have Jim Bianco from Bianco Research with us for the hour. We're going to be talking about a new index Jim created and his outlook for 2024. But it's our first live, our last live show of the year, Professor. Uh, get your uh-huh. view of the what you see wrapping up 2023 and your outlook as we head into 2024. Yeah, well, I think we've continued to get Goldilocks uh, data this week. I mean, the inflation numbers were on the PCE that that came out uh, today was uh, at or below expectations. Um, And the real data was was fairly strong. I mean, uh, jobless claims, wow, you know, Remaining in the 200 to 210,000 range is strong. We had really strong housing stocks. Now, home sales were below expectations. Um, but there's, you know, no signs of the economy's falling apart. And in fact, most of the uh, estimates for GDP have been moving upward from the low ones uh, for the fourth quarter now to, uh, you know, perhaps the low twos. Now, of course, we, you know, Christmas sales were in the last stage and we don't have all that data yet, so that, that'll that come out. But clearly, uh, it's strong. By the way, durable goods were also strong um, uh, for November. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, keeping uh, – that's that's the best possible news for the market. I mean, I think there's, uh, there's two chats uh, that I listened to that I think I should voice my opinion on here as we go into 2024. First of all, uh, chat, chat number one is, oh, my goodness, the market has priced um, many more cuts in than the Fed. The Fed has priced three cuts in uh, for 2024. Um, the market is, you know, priced about, you know, five or six cuts in. Uh, now, I'm going to repeat what we've said before, that the Fed funds is not an unbiased estimate of what the market expects the rate to be. It is downward biased by, in my estimation, one or two cuts. So it is, yes, still below what the Fed has put on its chart, but not as radically below uh, as many people have said. Second thing, um, uh, people are misunderstanding this market rally um, in response to the Fed. It is not so much that, you know, uh, the Fed is going to lower rates in March, uh, which I think they very well might, or June or whatever. The important thing is that they signaled flexibility and uh, an, uh, willingness, certainly, if the economy slows down, uh, to, in fact, lower rates. The biggest threat was stubbornness on the Fed on the way down. Um, and... Um, uh, as, of course, they were overly stubborn on the way up. That was the threat. 
that threat has been um, certainly softened, if not neutralized. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind the Fed funds rate only going down two or three if the economy stays certainly in the two, two and a half percent or, or, or even higher range uh, in, in 2024. So it's not so much that, um, uh, you know, that oh, we've got to have those cuts or the market will be disappointed. It's more like if the mark, if the economy is going to be slowing. And again, I don't see any signs now certainly from the toward pace of the third quarter, but in general at a, at a quite good pace and not recessionary. If the economy slows down, the Fed is ready to lower those rates. So that is why I think the market reacted so special. Um, um, and, and not that they have to lower rates in order to justify um, the, the market rally that we've had so far. So coming into this year, you had a, a, a very correctly bullish call for the markets as, as you're thinking about next year. What is still possible from yeah, where we well, are? I was very accurate. I was one of the very few that was extremely uh, accurate on the stock market. I'll have to say I was absolutely not accurate on the interest rates. <laughs> I will admit it. I admit my mistakes. Um, we, I thought the interest rates would go down because of the over-tightening of the Fed, um, and, and of course, as you know, I kind of revised my belief in the summer, bully, seeing that this economy could stand these higher rates much more than anyone had thought, um, and that the neutral rate is probably even higher than the Fed now. Uh, not uh, our our star is not zero point five percent. The neutral Fed funds real rate it's probably one and a half percent, which would mean that I think that Fed funds are probably going on three and a half. Um, in its long-run equilibrium, we talked about the impairment of bonds as a as a risk asset hedge. People um, and faster growth all mean for higher real rates. So the the real rate structure is is going to be higher. And um, uh, now that said, I think the the Fed will lower rates this year. Um, if the economy really slips and looks like recession, we'll go down to two. But if it doesn't, will be going down into the four range, I would say, uh, depending on, on, on how the data uh, actually turns out. And by the way, there's no, and there won't be any raise. I mean, you're not going to raise an election year. People are um, not in the mood for that. It's a question of cuts or not. So the question is how fast will the cuts be? And we'll know. The data will be coming in, uh, you know, January 31st. The next meeting, uh, meeting after that is, what, March 17th or whatever, you know, so there's months of data that we'll have to process to see whether the economy's slipping or not. But I would say, so interest rates are going to fall, not much on the long end, more on the short end, you know, and I hope we normalize the term structure. On the stock market, I'm still very bullish. Um, even though it looks like they're at 19 to 20 times earnings, uh, you know, you take out the tech sector, they're 15, 16 times earnings, and I think... I think we will see a rotation this year. I thought we'd see it. Uh, I mean, when I say this year, 24, I thought we'd see that rotation in 23. We didn't. The The gross stocks continue, outperformed the value stocks by almost exactly the amount they fell for, short in 2022, uh, interestingly enough. So um, it was almost an exact reversal of what we've seen. But I would say that uh, 
Growth stocks will likely give some of it back, and I don't mean to necessarily have to fall, but fall relative to value in um, in 2024. Professor, I know, or I believe one of your thesis advisors, Bob Solo, uh, was uh, passed away this week. Is uh, anything you want to say about what you oh, learned wow. from Bob? The, uh, I mean, you lived well into his 90s. He was the best. He was the best of the three teachers. I was honored to have Paul Samuelson, Franco Modigliani, Robert So, all Nobel Prize winners as my thesis committee at MIT. And, I mean, they've all passed away. He, um, Samuelson lived into his 90s, early 90s. Um, for, um, they were all great economists. And Solo was the best teacher um, of all. He really had a great feel. I have memories of him. And... Um, yeah, the old generation, uh, the owner, old generation that taught me uh, is gone, but they left their mark and, uh, and, and they lived a long time. One, one of the things I know I'm going to talk about with Jim, you talk a little bit about the money supply. And Jim, I might bring you in for like a quick comment on what the professor says. But when you think about the money supply, that was one of the things that you were concerned about earlier this year. Jim's got some views on the money supply and inflation. But do you want to sort of reflect where the money supply is and what that means for, for next year? Um, you're asking me now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think it's got to grow again at 5 5.5%. If we want 2% inflation, do 2.5% growth. And right now, it's stagnant. I mean, next we're going to get the money supplied. Tuesday, it only comes out monthly, but I follow the deposits of banks, and they're totally stagnant, which is the largest part of the M2 money supply. So, I mean, it to me... They're going to have that's one thing, lower rates, increase loans, and that will get the liquidity going again to support the growth. So in my opinion, um, th that's another reason to do that. Uh, now, the money supply has stopped falling, which is good, but I don't think it's rising at a sufficient rate right now to, to give that sort of growth over the next 12 months. Jim, you, so you and your 2024 outlook, you also talk a little bit about the money supply and, and and some of the annual changes versus the cumulative changes. Do you want to give your view on some of the, the money supply and inflation trends? Yeah, so a lot of people have been looking at money supply on a year-over-year -year basis, and it went negative earlier this year, bottomed in April, for the first time since the 1930s. And they were getting all bellicose that this meant, you know, the end of human civilization was coming and all of this other stuff. And I've said... It's better to look at it on a trend basis because you had a giant spurt of money supply in 21 and into 22. And while it's been coming down year over year negative, it's still $4 trillion higher than its pre-COVID trend. So we still have a lot of excess money. And so I don't necessarily look at the money supply numbers as being overly negative. I agree with Dr. Siegel that you know they probably are going to bottom and turn higher I also look at another metric, which is you know non-U.S. money supply, which is basically all the other major countries except the U.S., and that's actually growing at 6.5% a year right now uh, on a year-over-year -year basis, and it, too, is above its pre-COVID trend. So all the metrics that I look at point towards a money supply on a year-over-year -year basis does not mean that we're going to have this deflationary collapse in the economy like a lot of people worried because the last time it happened was the 1930s. And B, if you look at the trend in money supply, there's still plenty of money in the system, and it's probably going to continue to turn higher. 
and be supportive for the economy in 2024. Let, let me push back a little bit on this, uh, Jim, and that is the price level has jumped. So, you, you know, you gotta, it's got to be M over P, not just M. Um, and I did a trend on the money, and you're right. You're absolutely right. It's well, still well above trend, but the price level jumped. 10, 15% above trend. When I looked at M over, I looked at the two trends and I really saw that that excess money has now been used up and we're to the, we're basically, I think, to the velocity level that we were pre-pandemic. So no, that's, uh, that's what, true. What, what it does mean, it is, uh, you know, it, it that, that's what I mean. So, and I'm very, you know, I, 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 I don't follow the foreign as much. I'm very happy that that's growing again. And I'm very bullish on the foreign sector next year because its valuation is so much cheaper than the United States. Um, that would be good news there. Um, 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 but its, it's valuation is mostly like the value stocks in the United States, and most of them are value stocks. So it's not all that much different uh, if you actually vet it for that. But nonetheless... The price level jumped, so it's not just the M itself relative to trim, it's the M over P over relative to trim. I, I agree with that. And, you know, my pushback uh, to what I, with the trend was this narrative that was in the market that because money supply turned negative for the first time in 70 years, the economy was supposed to collapse. And I was like, no, this a, it's a little bit more uh, complicated than that. And then the other thing I point out, Dr. Siegel, as you well know, is when money supply goes down, I think people have this mistake to think, well, that means money has been destroyed or it's gone away, gone to money heaven. No, it's moved into non-money categories like ETFs or like institutional money market funds or like things that are not in that metric of money supply. It still exists. It just exists in different places that's outside of what we call readily spendable and easily accessible, which is the broad definition of how something gets involved. Yeah, uh, in, I mean, the M2, M2 figure, you know, you could, you know, talk about what should be added um, to that. Um, I mean, you know, you even you could talk about stable coins and tether coins and, you know, th that stuff that is at least tied to uh, uh, fixed rate on, on the dollar and, and several other instruments, which uh, would, would really help that M, M, M2 subject. Also, as, as, you know, I, the, the, you're, you're absolutely right. It was the first really decline in my supply in 35 years. But remember, back in the 30s, we actually, it, it, the decline was 35% for like over, I mean, it, we, we, we never got anywhere near that. And it wasn't after a jump, as you say, beforehand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, 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 I was concerned and uh, uh, but I knew that we were nowhere near a 1930s scenario. Fortunately. Well, Professor, I'm going to continue my conversation with Jim. Thanks for joining us to start the Thank show. You. And we'll have a great holiday season. We'll yeah, see you. And Happy New Year 20... for everyone. Happy New Year 2024. Bye. So, Jim, we've got some interesting discussions uh, and and some news to share. We uh, Jim and I for 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 everybody's background. Uh, WisdomTree launched uh, an ETF tied to the Bianco Research Fixed Income Total Return Index. Jim's been in the research business, but created an index, and WisdomTree licensed it for one of our ETFs. WTBN is, is the ticker. 
Jim, um, why so why go from research to creating an index? What's the uh, the thought behind getting into the index business? The simple answer is now is the time I think to really start to get into it. Um, so let me make a quick comment about the index that we're talking about. It is a long only fixed income bond index, not an equity index, uh, and we have five factors that we've identified that will lead to outperformance in the bond market, you know, duration, whether or not you're long or short interest rates, the yield curve, whether you're bulleted or barbelled, you know, same duration and how you own it. You're, you're waiting relative to your benchmark or um, in credit and in structure and some out, outlier uh, factors, such as whether or not you own preferreds or munis, or in our case now, treasury inflation protected securities. Um, why an index of this type? Well, in equities, most people are familiar with the idea that about 95% of discretionally managed or actively ma- discretionally managed indexes or actively managed funds cannot beat the benchmark like the S&P 500. But in fixed income land, the index kind of falls around the 50th percentile. So about half of the funds can beat it. And there's a lot of reasons that in fixed income is a little bit different in than with equities. I think one of the big ones is in fixed income land, your biggest weightings in an index tend to be your problem children, tend to be your over-levered companies. If you're talking globally, it tends to be your companies that borrow too much, like Italy or Japan, and they tend to do poorly, which is why if you can avoid those, you can outperform an index. But in equities, your biggest weightings are your all-stars. They're your Apples, they're your um, NVIDIAs, and if you don't have a big weighting in those big all-stars that run, you really have a difficult time of beating the index. So now that the bond market has sold off and we're back to a yield, my friend Jim Grant, who writes the uh, newsletter Interest Rate, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, likes to say that it's wonderful now that there's actually an interest rate to observe again. Uh, now that we have an interest rate to observe again, uh, I think that now is the time that there's a extraordinary opportunity in bonds that you can get a decent yield. And if you manage that properly, you can get an even better yield. Whereas in 2019, there really wasn't an opportunity to manage any yield because there wasn't a yield. And the only thing you could really hope for was continued falling of interest rates. And they did. And in the case of Japan and in Europe, they went negative. They fell so much. Not in the United States, though. But now there is a way that if you can manage it through like a discretionary index like we have done, you can hold that yield and maybe avoid some capital gain uh, losses and get some capital gains and get a superior total return. And in fixed income land, that is much it's it's easier. I want to say historically, it's been easier to do in fixed income land because of where the index falls within the universe relative to equities. Yeah, it's interesting. You think about in stocks, that momentum effect is stronger, get the bigger weights. But in in fixed income, while all these active have held for so long, it's like, well, I don't want to just give the most weight to who has the most borrowings. I want to make sure they can pay back the borrowings. I think your point is well taken there. In in, in the interesting question um, on the the chips yields, you mentioned that our our yields didn't go negative, but chips yields were quite negative for a while in the U.S. And it's like, who would say that you would give the government $100 to get $90 back after inflation 10 years later? But that's what 
people were doing for a while. It's sort of crazy negative tips yields. But now you think there's an opportunity in tips. Maybe speak to that a little bit. So that's one of your out-of-benchmark bets that you mentioned is that sort of tilting to tips. What's, uh, what's the story there? Yeah, so 20% of our index currently is in uh, tips that are in zero to five years, so very short-term tips. Uh, and just so everybody knows what a TIP is, it stands for Treasury Inflation Protected Security. It is a bond issued by the government, and it pays you the inflation rate plus a yield. So if you bought $100 worth of these bonds, and in a year the inflation rate is 3% like it has been, you will have $103 worth of bonds in a year. They will give you a little bit of bonds every month based on the CPI rate. They, they refer to that as accretion. Uh, and then you get a yield on top of that. So you're right that if you go back to before the pandemic and even in the early parts of 21 and so, the tips yield was negative. So you were still getting more bonds because of the inflation rate, but the net you were you were paying the government to own this security because you had a negative yield. But that's not the case anymore. You are now getting these. You are now getting the inflation rate plus. In this case, you know, up to about one to one and a half percent on the short end, depending on which one you're talking about, of a yield on top of the inflation rate. Now, I like it for two reasons. One, if you look at the inflation rate at around three with one to one and a half, that's a nominal yield, a very short term interest rate, which is government guaranteed around four and a half percent. And two, I am in the sticky inflation camp and that I think that the inflation rate might be bottoming here around 3%. And I, mean, I use that word carefully, sticky, that I think it's going to hold here. Maybe it drifts higher, but I'm talking about three to four that it drifts higher. I like to joke, I'm not in the eight to 10 or Zimbabwe camp for inflation at all, nothing like that. But if I can all see that, that outlook unfold, I could get three or 4% of more bonds from tips in a year plus one and a half percent or so one to one and a half percent of a yield on top of that that's pushing five high five yield and that's a very good yield to get and that's one of the examples i it's a great example of what i'm talking about when when you're in an environment now where there's a yield you've already had the big sell-off in the bond market if you manage it correctly you can keep that yield and maybe get a little bit extra with a discretionally managed index like we've put together at bianco research well, let's talk about that sticky inflation thesis. And you just did your 2024 outlook for people who haven't followed Jim on Twitter. He does a lot of great commentary there. You can see he did a, a full two-hour presentation yesterday on on his outlook for the next year. But, and, but you had a few comments on the on what's driving this sort of sticky inflation. So if if you go through, like, what are the most important parts of why you think inflation might be sticky? What are what are yeah. Yeah, well, first of all, you're right. We did do a, our outlook yesterday. It did run almost two hours, but don't worry. The video is on YouTube and on Twitter, and it's bookmarked, and it's got plenty of uh, sections. You could go look at the parts you want. You don't have to watch the whole thing from beginning to end for two hours. But you're right that it, the idea that inflation is going to be sticky, I think, is in, is twofold. One is if you break down inflation and you look at what are the components of inflation, services, account for 3.3% of the 3.1% of inflation. In other words, more than all of the other part components combined. 
So let's talk with the other components combined. Energy is a drag on inflation. That is falling gasoline prices. That is basically, an, because we're talking about CPI, it's gasoline prices more than crude oil. Of course, crude oil does impact gasoline prices. So the energy component is really your outlook on gasoline prices for 2024. Uh, I'll just make one, two broad comments about gasoline. One, it's been extraordinarily volatile in the last two years, especially this last year, where, you know, don't look now, but it swings a dollar one direction or the other. I suspect that volatility will continue into 2024. We're near the lower end right now in that volatility. And two, I think that uh, if you look at OPEC, which drives crude oil prices, which drives gasoline prices, OPEC plus, which includes Russia, is voluntarily cutting on production. And they've made no secret about it. They want the price higher. And they will do whatever it is they need to do to push the price of crude oil higher, the raw material for gasoline prices. So you could make a reasonable case that it's at least bottoming or it might start to drift higher so that negative pull from gasoline might dissipate on inflation in 24, which is good for tips. Uh, goods, goods prices, stuff, if you want to call it that, is on a year-over-year basis essentially at zero. Uh, now, stuff has been falling. I'll use that term instead of goods. And one of the things that leads it seems to be the state of shipping and the state of trade. And right now, if you look at some of the shipping numbers, because most of the stuff we buy is not made in the United States, it's made overseas. And a good indicator of that would be container shipping prices, bulk rate prices, those prices might be bottoming right now. Um, now, I am not in any way suggesting we're going to repeat 21 and we're going to be counting the number of ships anchored off of Los Angeles or Long Beach that are waiting to get in to unload. We're not going to go back to that. But what we might be having with shipping right now is we have an excess glut that might be worked away and we could see higher prices and stuff start to flow through. On services, the big part that's holding up inflation the biggest part of services is shelter, which is our home prices. Now, the way they calculate this is they use this metric called the owner's equivalent rent, which is your, your home is considered both a physical asset and a financial asset. Maybe my home or your home goes up in price because it's more desirable or because people get wealthier and they can pay more. That's not necessarily inflation. Or maybe your home goes up just because it's a thing, it's a stuff, and it gets more expensive. That is inflation. And that's why they do this metric of surveying rentals and trying to separate out the financial aspect of a home to the physical aspect of a home. And a lot of people have noted that the rental component that they use for OER is a lagging indicator. And it's been falling all year. And, it, and the projections are it will continue to fall into 24. And I agree with that, at least for the beginning of 24. But if you look at it on a cumulative basis, kind of like our discussion with money supply, over from 2013 to 2021, uh, the owner's equivalent rent component of inflation followed real-time measures of housing prices in rentals like Zillow. We're all familiar with the website Zillow. Maybe you've signed up for it to see what you know the Zillow estimate is of your home. They have an algorithm that estimates the price of every home and every rental unit, every single one in the United States. And they put out almost nearly a real-time estimate of what is the changes of all those homes. And it tracked very well with OER until 21. 
Then Zillow took off and OER started to move up. And Zillow is way ahead now of OER. So there's a gap now. Prices of homes and rentals are up far more than they are being reflected in the CPI index. So while I think the rate of change might still come down some more because it's still running at a very hot number, 6%, I, I fear it might be a little sticky in coming down mm-hmm. because we got to close that gap to Zillow. Uh, maybe the Zillow numbers are actually showing signs of bottoming in the last few months, but they usually lead by a year. That would be a 25 story for OER to turn up, but not necessarily a 24. But if it stays sticky, that would be supportive of my idea that an inflation rate might be bottoming at 3 to 4%. And if I can get three to four percent more bonds in a tips plus a yield on top of that, that would be a very good, relatively risk-free, risk interest rate-free because it's very short-term securities. It's not subject to the swings in interest rates as much as longer-term maturities are uh, of, a, of an inve- uh, of, uh, investment. And that's why we've got a, a weighting of it of twenty percent in our index right now. It's very interesting on the on the on the shelter. It's one of the things that Siegel and I have been writing about, and we put this alternative metric out that we use exactly for what you're talking about. We use the Case Shiller number for OER and and for Zillow. We use Zillow Rent as a as part of the shelter thing, and our number interestingly was printing when we were substituting what we thought was a more real time number for shelter versus like eight to nine percent BLS shelter you're getting. Like we were saying, oh, the actual real inflation is much much lower. Now, our number bottomed, you know, our shelter number sort of ticked close to like zero for a while because Case Shiller was printing negative for seven months in a row. But our number is now converged. It is now closer to 5%, you know, versus the six and a half versus, hey, we had like seven, 8% gap between our number and the official numbers. So it's interesting. It, it did it did swing. It'll be very interesting to see how that all evolves next year on the shelter and uh, how, how lagging and how, how it all filters all through. If you say from the longer term perspective, you say like China was one of the big stories for, for deflationary over the last few decades. Is that now sort of this nearshoring, friendshoring story part of this sort of longer thesis on inflation? Yeah, uh, uh, you know, on this, on this sticky inflation story, yes, China definitely is. The big story, you know, one of the big stories we back up to 20, the beginning of 2023, uh, China, you know, announced the end of zero COVID. And we might remember if we go back into 2022 that they they had that, that self-imposed lockdown under zero COVID. Most people in China live in apartment buildings. And the reason I say that is they would literally weld your front door shut and would not let you out of your apartment as their crackdown of zero COVID. And it led to what was referred to as the white paper revolution. There was actually a revolution briefly around November of 22, where people protested and then the government relented and gave up on zero COVID. So coming into the year, we all thought, get out of the way, you watch, a billion people are gonna now be able to open their front door, walk out their door, and they're gonna have economic activity, they're gonna go back to work, they're gonna do things, they're gonna spend money, and the Chinese economy is gonna zoom. And it absolutely did not. It did recover because it was no longer in zero COVID, but it didn't boom. And the result of that has been the Chinese stock market has been a terrible performer. It's down over 10%. Uh, Last time I looked a couple of days ago for the year, and it's been really struggling. Part of what's been happening with China not being able to recover is there's this this deglobalization trend going on right now. 
that people are looking at countries. We used to think globalization was, let me talk about what it was before 2020. Search the world, find the cheapest alternative in the world, wherever it happens to be, build your factory there, make your product there, put it on a boat, send it to the U.S. Now there's a lot more concern about either political instability, human rights violations, um, or the like, on where we are doing business in these countries. So you're starting to see people move out. We've seen Google announced that the, their Pixel phone is now going to be assembled in India, and they're going to start moving more and more of their production of components for that phone outside of China. Apple has made similar types of noises about doing the same thing with the iPhone, trying to move it out of China as well. So that's the friend shoring part of it by moving to India or, you know, um, or reshoring by bringing stuff uh, back to the United States, like uh, semiconductor chips, because they're considered to be strategically important. Now, we're doing that for, you know, very good reasons, political instability, maybe human rights violations. We want to get away from countries that abuse that. And that's all well and good. But the reality is it's more expensive to move to first move and then to move to these countries. We're not moving to India or moving back to the United States because the cost benefit analysis suggests that it's cheaper. It might be cheaper in the long run because of the political stability uh, stability that you would get. But it is going to cost more and it is going to cost more to produce these products. And those is going to get passed along in higher prices so that reality is China is probably one of the bigger problems that we've been that we saw in 23 uh, that will probably continue into 24. And I think that its result is going to be a upward push on the cost of goods as we move forward into 24, 25 and 26. And Jim, you know, it's fascinating for the equity markets. We're at like historically low in some ways last for a while equity volatility, but bond volatility, not so much. What's going on in your view of what's suppressing equities, why bond volatility is so high? Well, I think the, the simple answer is there is what we refer to as an investor skew in equities, just to start there. The investor skew means that people tend to view falling prices as more volatile than rising prices. So when the stock market rallies, volatility falls, and when the stock market declines, volatility rises. That's the investor skew. So as the S&P pushes near an all-time high, you're seeing volatility in the, in the stock market fall. But in the bond market, volatility tends to be more random than the price. Whether yields are going up or down cannot tell you whether or not you're seeing more or less volatility in the bond market. What might actually lead volatility in the bond market is the shape of the yield curve. It's now what we refer to as inverted, meaning short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates over the last year or so, which is an unusually long period of time for that to be. So that inverted yield curve is leading to higher volatility. And so I think that that situation is going to continue into 2024. The inverted yield curve high volatility. The bond market is well above average in volatility. It's pushing, you know, in the upper third of what we've seen over its history of the last 30 years in volatility. Now, what does that mean for investors in bonds that we have higher volatility? There is a big part of the bond market that is tied to volatility, and that would be, say, mortgage-backed securities. 
every mortgage in the United States, not most mortgages in the United States, I should say, are chopped up into little pieces, if you will, and they're put into securities and people buy these mortgage-backed securities. And every mortgage in the United States has a prepaid option. Your, your mortgage, my mortgage, everybody's mortgage does. Whenever you want, you can refinance it. And when you get that check from the refinancing, you just pay off your mortgage. You can do that without a penalty or without any constraints. So in Bondland, we call that an option. You have an option on your mortgage to prepay it. Well, one of the big drivers of an options price is volatility. So with higher volatility, you're seeing 7% mortgages because of that option versus like a 4% 10-year note or 4% 30-year note. That 300 basis point spread between the two is because of that higher volatility. Uh, I think that that is going to persist into 2024 uh, and that that is going to be a problem because remember, higher yields means lower prices. And that's why mortgages have been a chronic underperformer in, uh, in 2023 and so. But I think going forward from here, I'm looking at mortgages. It's not only maybe being a chronic underperformer, but again, maybe trying to capture some of the yield without the price risk. And we've got some ideas on how we might do that by looking at current coupon mortgages and the like as we move into 2024 for a reweighting of, of our index. But these are the types of things that bond investors have to consider when they want to back into the good old days if there's a yield and you want to protect that yield and you want to manage that yield and hopefully try and get some total return by getting some price appreciation on top of that yield as you manage the bond market going forward. Is that the simple explanation for why, you know, you think about the spread between like the 10-year bond and, you know, you, somebody going to buy a house and the mortgages are like historically high to get your mortgage rate versus what the 10-year bond normally is? Is it just because of this vol is so high that the banks have to price it with that extra yield? Yes, that is that is a big reason why that they, they you know, it isn't a mechanic. It is mechanically priced that way because of the higher vol. That's a big part of it. But also that higher vol is representative of a lot of uncertainty in the bond market as well, too. So you might, Bob, get a, a 7% mortgage. And because of this higher volatility, the banks are saying there is a reasonable chance that interest rates could fall a lot next year. There's a reasonable chance that they won't fall a lot next year. And if they fall a lot next year, I get paid on a 7% mortgage. And I like that. I'm a, a bank and I get write you a 7% mortgage and you start paying me 7%. And that's great, except then you pay off your mortgage when interest rates go down. And then I don't longer get that 7%. So we have to price in that reality that that 7% I might get won't last for a long period of time. And that's why you see these ever higher and higher rates staying very sticky. And it shows up, unfortunately, in the way that mortgage borrowers, people that borrow to buy a house or refinance, are seeing these sticky um, mortgage rates. Now, eventually, the bond market will settle down. Now, that eventually might not be for another year or two, or maybe it is in 24. And when that volatility settles down, those mortgage rates will come down closer to U.S. Treasury rates. But right now, with that uncertainty and that high volatility, 
those mortgages are going to stay at a higher yield and their prices are going to remember higher yield means lower prices for the mortgage securities and they're going to stay at those depressed prices. So I guess in terms of your index, we talked a little bit about the tips. We talked about being underweight mortgages, and uh, that's one of the posi- relative positions in, in what you're doing. I guess another big part of it is credit. Uh, how, what's your outlook for credit as you think about allocating both to investment grade, high yield for your outlier type exposure? What's your thoughts on that segment of the fixed income market? Well, it's a bond index, and in the bond market, credit exposure relative to a benchmark is basically your stock exposure. If you were to look at, you know, the spreads, the spreads being the yield on it on a corporate bond less the yield on a treasury, it's spread, and overlay that difference on, say, the S&P 500 chart and look at all bonds in a corporate bond index, they're largely the same thing. So your credit allocation is kind of like your stock market outlook. Investment grade would line up with the S&P 500. High yield would line up more with the Russell 2000, um, a little bit lower grade credit, in theory, lower grade companies that are smaller in the Russell 2000, although there's some great companies in that uh, index, the Russell 2000 index. And so well, we're coming into 2024, we are slightly underweight credit. Now, the reason that I'm underweight credit is not because I think that the stock market's in trouble. If I did, I wouldn't be slightly underweight. I'd be a lot more underweighted. But I do think that one of the things that the stock market is suffered from that was very apparent in 23, and let me just by say, first of all, take the Magnificent Seven companies, you know, the Googles, the NVIDIAs, the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Apples the Teslas. Let's remove those and put those over here and say, these are seven companies that did extraordinarily well because of two letters, AI. They had a theme, they rallied huge, and they continued. Now, let's look at the other 493 companies in the S&P and say the mid-cap companies and the small-cap companies. They struggled all the way to the end of October. And one of the things that they struggled with was higher interest rates. And even though in the third quarter, when S&P, was, S&P 500 companies were reporting, by the end of October, over half of them reported. And as a group, they reported pretty good numbers. And the S&P had still sold off 10% from its July high to its late October low. It went down when all these companies were reporting great numbers. Then what happened in late October, early November? The Treasury announced their quarterly refunding announcement, which was they were going to issue less bonds, more bills. The inflation numbers beat in um, the middle of November, and bonds took off in November and had one of the best months in 40 years, and the stock market took off too. So if I was to give a stock investor two options, here's 280 or so decent earnings reports, and here's a bond rally. The stock market seems to be saying, you can keep your earnings reports, give me a bond rally. So as I run into 2024, I'm very aligned with Dr. Siegel's viewpoint that we might see two, two and a half percent real growth in the economy as we go through this year. Not a soft landing. That would be in the parlance that we're talking about is a no landing scenario. Um, No landing is the economy just keeps going. The plane just keeps flying like it usually does. If I get my three percent inflation target, I'm looking at what's called nominal growth. That's real growth plus inflation at around five, five and a half percent. 
I'm still sticking with, and I know this is not a popular view and it hasn't been working, but I'm still sticking with the idea that we could see the 10-year yield maybe run back over 5%, maybe even close to 5.5%, somewhere in 2024. If that's the case, I think the stock market's going to have a problem with it. It's not going to sell off uh, hard. It's not going to have a bear market. It's not going to be the end of the world. But it'll be more like 23 XDAI stocks. It will struggle in the face of the competition of higher interest rates, which is why I'm walking into 2024 slightly short credit right now. Um, you know, and we'll be reviewing that all the time because if interest rates start to bottom and creep back up, I think that that will be a big headwind for the equity market. Yeah, your, your point on the sort of in a lot of that commentary was that stocks and bonds were moving together. And that's one of the things we've been talking about a lot is the rising correlation between stocks and bonds actually makes you need a higher yield on bonds. And so the, and, and the fact that and this is one of the even Siegel's views, like in stocks for long run, you say, hey, we're going to lower for longer. He's, he's revised his own outlook on this correlation more than almost anything, because you had that negative correlation and you know, you can pay for insurance because bonds were a hedge, but now they're not being that insurance hedge. I think your point on the correlation is quite interesting. It also means, like, what should people do for a hedge? I mean, given that inflation is now a longer longer concern. Any any thoughts on, on what – if they're using your index for, for the bond allocation in stocks, what you would do as a good hedge as part of the 60-40? Yeah, you know, I think um, the simple answer is Peter Lynch needs to come out of retirement. <laughs> uh, I, I think that, you know, the, the structure of an ETF is a very tax-efficient – it's an awesome structure – not just for my index and the license agreement I have with Wisdom Tree, but for a lot of other people. The problem with the last 20 years, or that's not a problem, the last 20 years was hallmarked by stock and bond prices moved inversely with each other. So the 60-40 portfolio was just a wonderful tool because you were invested in the market, you participated in the upside, and when things got shaky, the bond side would rally and offset any kind of losses. But now that everything's moving together, it's going to be hard to find asset classes that are uncorrelated. Oh, maybe there's something in crypto or maybe there's something in commodities. But these are small kind of idiosyncratic asset classes that maybe deserve a 1% or 2% weighting in a portfolio in terms of crypto or 5 or 10% weighting in a portfolio in terms of commodities. But you certainly wouldn't want to put 40 or 50% of your money in that unless you're very young and you're willing to take extraordinary risk. Uh, so... I think what we need to look at is more active discretionary index kind of management and to say, maybe this is not the era of investing in the S&P 500 index. Maybe this is the era in investing in factor investing, which would be something somewhat analogous to what we're trying to do, where you try to pick various factors that you think will make the market outperform, or maybe an active manager like the Peter Lynch's of the world, I use him because he's been retired and, and it doesn't upset anybody, you know, that he comes in and says, look, I'll run an ETF where I just pick stocks that I think are going to go up, um, you know, not necessarily just own the broad index. And hopefully that type of approach can give diversification. So if the last 20 years or 25 years has been about broad based index purchasing, and I'm speaking more on the equity side, maybe as we move forward over the next several years, we go back to old-fashioned 1980s, 1990s stock picking, that it's no longer about watch the index go up. It's about finding value, finding good companies, finding good stories, 
finding good themes like AI was in 2023 and finding a way to capture those ideas as opposed to just buy them all and wait for all of them to go up. I think that era might be kind of coming to an end over the next several years, not immediately. We mentioned crypto and you mentioned a few things, what what the, and that in sort of small allocation, but the uh, one thing I want to ask you about, the earlier this year, post-SVB, you, you were one of the, the, the prominent people I was watching talking about the bank walk um, and sort of the, the challenges with banks and that they're not paying the appropriate interest rates, and they still aren't paying appropriate interest rates, but ba- the consumers have sort of been, you know, they've had a huge, there's, everybody's talking about the $8 trillion in money markets, so people have gone to money markets, but banks still have trillions that aren't paying people appropriate deposits. Is is there? Do you think consumers will ever make their bank deposits sweat harder? As, as you think about what's going on in crypto now, does that have you interested again? Any any views on the banks and crypto and, and all this uh, DeFi stuff? Yeah. So on the banks, the bank walk. You're right. You know, it was to differentiate it from a bank run, and that people were looking at their bank accounts and they were saying, "Why is Chase paying me one basis point on my money?" Why don't I move it to a money market fund and get 5%, 500 times more? And they are, and they have been, and they continue to through this week. That money just continues almost every single week to leave banks and go to money market funds to capture those higher yields and get higher interest income. That has not stopped, and that will continue. Bankers are really at a struggle to figure out what to do. Uh, The reason that this is happening is because of the new technology, not new to you and me, but it is to the industry over the last several years, and that is mobile banking apps. In the 1980s or 1990s, when banks didn't pay you yield and money markets did, you had to physically go to the bank and you had to physically fill out forms. And it was an arduous, painful process and no one did it. Today, if you get frustrated because your bank account isn't paying you money, you pick up your phone and you could transfer your money to a money market fund in a couple of minutes and you could pay, you get checking accounts and credit cards and all that other stuff out of your money market fund and you can get a higher yield. And that's been happening. Now, bankers, what are they going to do about it? Some bankers have said, do nothing. Some people will leave, but most won't. Other bankers are saying, no, we have to raise our deposit rates to defend our deposit base. So they're trying to figure out what is the appropriate way to go about it. The result of a bank walk is not that any bank is at risk of failing because of a bank walk. They aren't. Um, if they fail, they're going to fail for other reasons. It would be because of the not because of the bank walk. It's a risk of profitability because the bank is getting is you, giving you one basis point, using your money to earn five percent and keeping the rest for themselves. They have to pay you more. That's, that squeezes their margins, and that's why the bank stocks have been such poor performers over the last year, and I suspect that they will. Crypto, the big story in crypto right now. I'm going to have to cut you off on that one, Jim. We ran out of time, but uh, this has been so much fun. We've been, Wisdom Tree is working with Bianco on his new index, the license for this ETF, the Bianco Total Return Fund. Check it out. Uh, This has been a fantastic conversation. We wrap up 24. I'm sure we'll be doing this again with Jim in the new year, getting his updated views on the markets, on the economy. Thanks to our producer, Chris, in the studio for getting it done today. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great 2024 and a happy holiday season. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz, 
I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.